Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today we speak with Joe Kadaravec, who's the CEO of Cobalt Blue. He takes some time out of running his business to talk to us about the Cobalt market. We discuss trading versus buying. We look at pricing today versus the future on long-term contracts and how strategic partners could possibly be the way for junior explorers in the Cobalt space to get financed in what's quite a depressed market. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Joe. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Well, so, and of course, it's probably good evening to you, actually, because you're... Where, where are you right now? We're based in North Sydney, and uh, locally it's just gone 7pm. Okay, very good. Now, Joe, you have very kindly agreed to give some insight into the world of cobalt, because it's uh, a commodity which has, a, has seen great heights, and also, you know, more recently, less so. Um, but we're going to learn about and, and try and understand the market. Um, so if you don't mind, can you give us a little bit about your background and uh, give us an idea of you know, why you know a little bit about this topic? Sure. Okay. So I've, I'm an engineer by background, but I'm an aeronautical engineer of all things, which as part of that um, study gives me a materials engineering um, uh, you know, building block. So I spent my first few years of my working career in the, in the RAAF and for me, alloys and particularly cobalt and those type of alloys are very important because they created the strength or the heat resistance in an airframe or a gas turbine respectively. So from a practical point of view, that large segment today that cobalt goes into in terms of alloy, I've had some good exposure to. Subsequent to that, um, I was head of resources at Deutsche Bank out of Australia uh, in, into the Asian market. So I've been able to go into a mining role. I had also spent considerable time, about eight years, um, with BHP and Rio Tinto, where we did a lot of work in open cut. So um, large-scale mining, followed by um, a focus on the resources sector. And then in my last role, um, I ran money out of a hedge fund uh, based in Sydney, where we looked at global opportunities. Now, initially, 10 years ago, they were very much energy-saving style investments, so LED lights. But in the last four or five years, that morphed into energy storage which is a, a very broad category of, of batteries and um, particularly lithium ion, which we could see very early on was going to revolutionise uh, modern economies. Right. OK. Well, thank, thanks for that. OK. Wide and varied, okay. for sure. <laughs> so let, let's let's talk about the, the cobalt market. Now, people probably don't actually understand the, the size of the market in, in terms of volume terms and in dollar terms. So can you give us a little a little bit of background on that because uh, I think it's I was surprised at how small it was. Sure. So tell sure. us a bit about it. Sure. The the cobalt market today is somewhere around one hundred twenty five thousand to one hundred thirty thousand ton of metal equivalent, and that's an important point to note. Um, and that, by the way, has grown significantly from only ten years back, where those numbers were sort of sixty to seventy percent of that. Um, to give you some idea of its size, I can put the entire cobalt metal market into one bulk uh, capsized carrier. In other words, one of the larger iron ore carrying ships, just one cargo, the entire market will fit into. Wow. And because it's so small and because it's a fairly, um, how can I put it, unevolved market in the sense it's not terminally traded, it's very easy to lose sight of. So these shipments, these 
concentrates these uh, cobalt intermediates are typically um, hidden from public view until they arrive in a refining point. Um, and then value is added from say a hydroxide or a concentrate all the way through to a, a higher value product. But because of the scale of that, what happens is once they depart from the mine site, they then go through this big washing machine of this global cobalt refining complex, which is typically centered in the Asian countries, only to then reappear later on uh, effectively as a sulfate hydroxide or an acetate of the sorts to go into either a metal product ultimately or, or a, a cobalt chemical such as a, a battery. So it's a small market, company to company transaction, uh, very opaque. Um, we can talk about how pricing is set uh, essentially, but visibility in the near term is, is, is often difficult, longer term less so because the trends I think are quite compelling. Well, can we talk about that now actually with regards to how sure. the pricing is set? Because I, I know some one of your documents you, you talk about obviously there's LME and then you took up uh, which has its own pricing obviously and then you've talked about yeah. other other players there who you know look at it differently. So I mean again just talk, talk to us about why the discrepancy there. Yeah, so the LME, which is a default benchmark for a number of major metals, um, aluminium, uh, copper, nickel, for example, come to mind. Um, is, in 2010, the LME effectively sponsored the first cobalt metal price index. So there's a, there's a long dated history there of cobalt metal pricing. The problem for cobalt, though, is that on any day of the week amongst the, I think there's about 32 LME warehouses globally, oh, probably more than that now, there's only about six to 700 tonne of metal in those warehouses. So it represents a fraction of a very small market. And it represents typically uh, a financial asset for cobalt metal. So it's the guys who are storing that metal for a future arbitrage, so a cash and carry style arb is typical. It doesn't really reflect the company, the company transaction. And if the LME um, metal doesn't transact as can happen for a week or two or three, you can actually lose touch. In some cases, if there's then a transaction can go in a, in a different direction to the metal. For example, today, the latest quotes um, on the cobalt price in, out of the LME are somewhere around $14.50 um, uh, US a pound. The real price, the commercial price, and I can talk about how that's set, is, is $18 a pound today. So it's a huge discrepancy. Eventually, the LME tracks and will give directional guidance but on a, on any given day it's a very poor indicator of what's happening in the market and, and why is that what's going on here because you know people people like most commodities there's there's trading and then there's buying yep. right so yes. with a small opaque market um i mean it's not unusual yeah the the opaqueness there's nothing there's nothing sort of underhand about it it's just the fact that such a small market it's not regulated in any way. It's not a you know not a critical mineral. So, who, yep. who does control what's going on? Because it, it, it seems very important metal. It's pretty much talked about and commodity, but it, no one's controlling it. Yeah. So let me answer your question with your words. So if you break a market, a, a physical market, into those who are um, users and those who are speculators, if you like, um, the LME for other metals, those bigger metals, does a very good job of providing counterparties to each other. So you, they can play the term curve. One party can get surety of supply. The other party can make a, a profit, a bit a speculative one. Um, cobalt, where it's come from, it being company to company, doesn't necessarily lend itself to a lot of speculation because it mm. tends to go straight into the production chain and then ultimately on. 
more recently in the last 10 years or so, there's been an, an increased use of speculative intermediates. So there is some uh, um, arbitrage in that, but generally speaking, it goes into a production chain and ultimately uh, into a end use. The, the percentage of speculation in the market would, and I don't have a number to come to mind, but would mm. be relatively small relative to much more mature terminally traded markets. The, the way, to answer your question directly, the way the, um, the market is set is that Metals Bulletin, or I think they're fast markets, uh, they've been rebranded as, um, set up uh, effectively an AM and PM call in Asia. So in, uh, in they will ring the known users, uh, buyers of the product, and effectively ask what transactions occurred that day. Were, were those transactions within the specifications of that particular product? and was the contract in that spec. So there's got to pass some criterion. And if it does, it'll reflect a data point of, of, of a sale. They'll do that twice a day. My understanding more recently out of um, Europe in Rotterdam, they've got a warehouse that they look at and do similar, ask similar questions. So there's a very data vetted environment. Does that transaction pass the criterion that represents a sale of that particular low or high grade cobalt alloy product? Nevertheless, it's a physical process of mm. assimilating data, weeding out the poor data points and creating uh, a benchmark price. So when I talked about earlier an $18 a pound cobalt low grade price, that's the Rotterdam price currently. And that may well hinge on a handful of trades that happen on a particular day. Okay, that, that, that's, it feels to me quite antiquated. It kind of feels like when I started out in the business, when you <laughs> weren't so many computers around, which is, um, mm. I, I, I guess, different um but yep. okay <laughs> understood understood can we talk about and we, i want to try and put this in terms that you know subscribers and followers and you know equities buyers will will understand without getting too technical mm -hmm. in with regards to the supply demand uh components yep. here so let, let's talk about supply first of all because if we look at some of the main players in the market um mm -hmm. they've been hit hard the last you know, couple of years, I would say definitely. Um, so, can you talk about, again? If you, do you mind talking about you know the supply side of things for us? Because I think most people sure. most people think about issues around DRC, and I think a lot of companies are banging that drum in the, in the sense that they 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 can um, bang the ethical drum a little bit more. But there's got to be more to it than that. At the, Okay, so let me break it down firstly by country, and you're right to identify the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So in primary cobalt, so cobalt from the uh, from the earth, um, cobalt from the DRC represents around 65% or more of, of, of end product, uh, of the total market, I should say. Um, within that, um, it's, it's estimated that um, about 20% of the 65 is artisanal sourcing. Now, some of that is is valid and, and is ethical. Um, it just happens to be mined at a, at a fairly low capital level and mined at a village level. Some of it isn't. Some of it is your own ethical source. And, and uh, there are those companies in the Western world which want to wean themselves away from any dependency or even contamination of that, that source. But to give you an idea, about 20% and of which a portion, only a portion is is, is unethical. Um, and then the rest are larger companies who occupy um, major mines and typically copper cobalt mines in, in, in the Congo. Um, and that's an important point actually I could, should make now. 
about 98% of the world's supply of, of primary cobalt um, is effectively a byproduct of either copper or nickel. So about 70%, as I've just mentioned, is, is African, slightly over with the Zem, um, with other rare credits. But the other 30 is largely nickel, um, some sulfates, but tip sulfides, but largely nickel laterites coming in. And so they're, they're your countries, your, your uh, Cuban Moa Bay, your, your Goro, your um, New Caledonian, there's Russian, there's, there's other Canadian tonnage there as well. So they make up the rump of those nickel um, uh, byproduct cobalt mines. Um, so that's that structure. In terms of who is at the physical companies, it's clear that Glencore um, own the lion's share, or have their finger on the lion's share of that production, largely because of their footprint out of out of um, the Congo. They do have other clearly other other assets that add to that, and they're in the numbers. There's a little bit of opacity, but my understanding is they're around about 30% of the market. And if you would count the top five producers, my understanding is you're well over the 50% range. So there's a there's a group there that does have a control as an aggregate a controlling um, interest in in today's cobalt that's interesting that's interesting okay so let, let's come on to demand and then perhaps we can talk about both t- together so clearly people associate cobalt primarily with batteries right battery use in yep. batteries so it might be worth sort of discussing what cobalt actually does in a battery first of all um sure <laughs> it's going to surprise you um so cobalt um so let me just take a step back. So uh, within energy storage as a whole, which is all batteries, and, and, and that's everything from flyer batteries to a, a dam. I mean, a dam at the end of the day, a hydro is a battery. So within the lithium ion space of that, um, there is a, a, a segment, a very large segment of cobalt based lithium ion batteries. And what the cobalt does is it resides in the cathode and effectively it's a glue. That's right. the best way to describe it. I'll give you an analogy for that. Um, Cobalt in the cathode is what cement is in concrete. So if I was building um, a unit, a block of units, and I had to put these units on these concrete pillars, Mm -hmm. because the cement is so expensive, it's in my interest to wean out as much of the cement I can. But then it becomes that game that kids play with pickup sticks. You can only take so many of those sticks out of it before the whole pile collapses. So you're trying, to tr- you're trying to thrift the cement, or in the case of the battery, thrift the cobalt mm. until the point it becomes unstable. So it's quite a good analogy. And today we're getting into chemistries which have are approaching the theoretical limit of the minimum amount of glue, the minimum amount of cobalt required to keep cathode stability. If you don't have cathodes that are stable, you end up getting runaway batteries, which can lead to uh, gas release, heat, and the two are a bad combination because typically the electrode between, the, sorry, the electrolyte between electrodes is a hydrocarbon-based liquid, so that's a very bad combination to have. That's interesting. So basically, the the battery designers are looking at the combination here, and because you know, cobalt it sounds like a very expensive glue to use your analogy, um, yeah. and obviously you can sort of see why people would want to you know re- re- reduce that cost component and and but it but as you say it does lead to you know safety issues we, we had an incident here in the uk just um last week where a battery recycling facility caught fire because you've got a lot okay. a lot of these re, you know old spent batteries um but they contain a lot of 
well, it can be varying degrees of uh, chemicals and, um, and, yep. and structures. So, no, I, I understand that's a, a major consideration with the battery designs. Um, so, just in terms of the other uses for cobalt, are there other sort of second, secondary or tertiary uh, uses for cobalt, or is yeah, that energy so me, the main one? Yeah, let me come, I'll answer your question, but let me just make another point on, on cobalt. It's one thing to say that the industry wants to thrift cobalt, and that's mm. an admirable goal. Um, but bear in mind, consumers want more aggressive batteries. So what I mean by that is they want to be able to charge their electric vehicle in about the same time as they fill up at a, at a petrol station. So the rule of thumb is a five to seven minute fill. Now that's yeah. a very, if you think about it, you're putting all that energy back into that, um, into that battery in a five to seven minute session. So it's, that's the same or the opposite, if you like, of discharging it in five to seven minutes. Batteries have a natural, what they call a C rating, and a C rating of one is a one hour charge. And that's a more natural time. So if you're compressing it to five minutes because the consumer wants to be out of that petrol station and on their way, you are actually designing a very aggressive or very stable battery to deal with very aggressive situations. Is that a realistic expectation? I mean, because we, you know, here we've, you know, we, we've been looking at, you know, buying a Tesla here. Um, you know, you can you can charge it conventionally, sort of overnight, or you can buy a sort of supercharger which charges it in an hour. But five to seven minutes is that? Yeah, look, that's that the target. If you like, that's the utopia for consumers. Wow. Um, Tesla, if I quote from their um, song sheet, they all their um, DC fast charge, the, the more rapid charging protocol, allows for an eighty percent charge in twenty minutes, and they're in you hit this limit because batteries are chemical devices after all. To charge the rest of the battery takes longer because it's a slower fill. But 80-20 is a pretty good here and now number. But mm. ultimately, it comes down to consumer preference. Will the consumer pay, if you like, a premium for a five to 10 minute charge, albeit with more glue in the, in the cathode, versus a 20 minute plus charge? Wow, okay. Sorry, I think I interrupted you making a point. No, so you, you asked the other question was about the broader uses. So mm. let me take a step back from the cobalt market. Um, today, over 50% of the market is batteries. The nearest number that um, we have visibility on is about 55%. Mm -hmm. So just focusing on that, um, you have effectively the two broader chemistries there are a sulfate, a cobalt sulfate, which is used for your EVs, um, and your larger role, that's because they have they lend themselves to lower cobalt cathodes. And the biggest other single uh, chemical um, segment there is a, a cobalt oxide, or they call an LCO battery, and that's for your consumer devices. So your phone or your laptop has a very high level of, of, of cobalt in it. And frankly, the producer is not incentivized to thrift that because the let's say 50 cents to a dollar of cobalt in your $1,000 phone, he's not gonna thrift that out if there's any uh, risk at all of causing an unstable battery. And you know, there's been a number of consumer electronic devices that's testimony. So within batteries, a big chunk of it is simply not um, incentivized to be thrifted in terms of consumer devices. And a big chunk and a growing chunk, the, the fastest growing segment, which is the sulfates and, and which go into these other devices like EVs, that is incentivized because the batteries there are physically big batteries. You know, yeah. in my 
just give you some idea, the my laptop battery scale to even a hybrid style, a plug-in hybrid style, is almost a thousand to one scale. It's a bigger battery. So smaller unit costs, bigger batteries. And in the case of consumer devices, GDP like growth rates, in the case of cars, etc., you you know, you're talking about twenty, thirty percent growth rates depending on on, on the country and the, and the style and the subsidy rates. So that's 55%. The other part is the biggest single slice is super alloys. I touched on that earlier. So cobalt has a very high temperature um, and is very uh, temperature melting point. Now what that effectively means is it keeps its strength at very high temperatures. Mm. And as a result of that, it's ideal um, for imparting strength, not only on alloys used at room temperature, but in particular gas turbines at much higher temperatures. So the aircraft industry loves cobalt and it means you can thrift on the aluminium. Um, you can you can get the same strength from less uh, material weight in the aluminium on the, on the structure. Mm-hmm. means you can run your gas turbines harder and, and, and hotter, which makes them more efficient because of that ability. Then, it, then you get broken down into smaller uses. Um, cobalt's one of the few um, magnetic elements there's only a handful of them um, and so it's used or used to be used quite widespreadly in um, as an additive in hard disk drives when they were a thing mm. and is used currently for um, uh, MRI mag- mag- magnetic resonance uh, devices in in uh, hospitals beyond that you really are starting to talk about super magnets and, and hard facing alloys so it's they're quite small markets beyond that right okay if I can if I can we, we talked earlier about trading versus buying and I think you answered that question particularly well, but I want to kind of bring this back to the the commercial reality or decision making for investors, which is um, twofold, really. So one is a question of how do public companies get a sense of, or investors for that matter, get a sense of the pricing, because you talked about this opaque market. So pricing today versus forecast. And I think obviously with the oncoming tsunami of the EV revolution, people sense that there's this huge demand profile um, out there. So I think that's sort of easy to understand. And then um, secondly, you know, how that affects the behavior of, again, companies with regards to, um, you know, selling on spot price or contracts, you know, term. It's a question, I think, that that goes to the heart of why cobalt's been a difficult metal to be invested in in the last few years, because we've had such tremendous highs and, and more recently such fairly um, short-lived but fairly low lows. Um, Look, the spot market, because it's such a small market and it's fairly opaque, it's difficult to understand, to get a sense of price trend in the near term. And I say that because knowing that cobalt is an industrial metal, so there's no store of wealth value or a a hedge against the US dollar or or yields, such as a precious metal would have in gold and et cetera. This is strictly a company to company transaction where the metal creates a utility of value. Um, In terms of that, it's difficult and I haven't seen too many experienced forecasters being able to add a lot of value on a one to two year basis. Now, there's a lot of very well intended, very well uh, experienced people in the in some of the consulting companies around, but in general, they I think have been surprised by the down leg in cobalt um, over 2018-2019, um, and are really more or less uh, mark to marketing their expectations in the next one to two years. In other words, they're more observers rather than than accurate predictors. Longer term. 
completely different story because longer term you can anchor your expectations over understanding what the EV take up is, etc. And yes, you may have different arguments over what the take up rates will be, but you can model, for example, battery size, you can model range, you can then model cobalt intensity, etc. So longer term, and because the numbers are so big, it actually gives you a fairly bit of room for error in terms of your forecasting. We have an extensive um, set of commercial partners and I'll just plug my company just for, for one moment, bear with me. So Co Cobalt Blue, uh, as an incoming developer listed on the ASX, has had a series of long dated relationships in both Korea and Japan with cathode makers and ultimately battery facilities. When we speak to our partners, it's clear that on average, their, their demand in 2019-2020 is X and their demand forecast for 2025 is something in the order of four to five X. And that's fairly consistent. So that gives you a data point. Demand in 2030 is their aspirational and in some cases he heroic numbers. So you're talking about, we talked about that portion of batteries, which is 55% of mm. which the sulfates, that portion will go up in the order of five times in the five year period of 2020, 2025. That's not forecasters telling me that. These are battery makers telling me that. And if they don't do it, then someone else will produce the battery for that EV. So there's a revolution occurring as we transide from high carbon petrol uh, internal combustion vehicles into these EVs. So it's a matter if you don't do it and don't do it quickly, someone else will offer that product. And the most successful EV makers, and I, and I don't want to get into an argument over some of the bigger brands, but generally speaking, successful EV makers model that vehicle on an existing mass market product. So it's something that consumers are comfortable to buy. It's not a radically new design in general is where the, the mass market will take up. So as a result, the longer term, we understand these numbers are going to be five times greater. Overall, the, the cobalt market, I'm comfortable to say, will grow by two and a half to, possibly, to three times in the next 10 years, so 2020 to 2030. So your 130,000 tonnes is going to be probably near a 400,000 tonne at the end of that process. Where I get confidence in the forecasting of the price, and I'm as simple as saying, look, is it going to be above the long-term trend of 24, 25 bucks, is you look at the, the supply coming in and the supply is very limited. Um, even if you allow for all of the African-centred um, supply to come in as per some of the more heroic forecasts by companies, you're still not going to meet the supply even on a three to four year basis, let alone a 10 year basis. So the market will ultimately need to price cobalt so that it finds a natural home. And I suspect that'll be in an EV given it's a small component of the overall price. And the thrifting, the irony is the thrifting will happen in the battery, but also happen in some of the lower economic uses of cobalt, hard facing tools, et cetera, will start to wean away. So I'm extremely comfortable by suggesting that on the 2025 basis and beyond, we're going to get an extremely tight market here and it's going to cause user behavioural changes, battery changes, other other changes of, of cobalt. Okay. And so if I just, I just make a second, I don't want to get too bogged down in the, that detail now. Um, because I do want to get onto the answer. You know, what does this mean for public companies and their behaviour? You know, we we talked about the second component there, which was spot versus you know contract or or, or term. Um, yep. But pricing today is about eighteen bucks, right? Long term, currently is about twenty four bucks. You're suggesting it will have, yeah, it'll have to go beyond that. 
um, because the, the supply yep. component just won't be there, whereas the de- demand, like a lot of companies which have, you know, you know, flogging commodities which go into a battery that, you know, we're, we're seeing this long-term f- um, demand um, curve. It's, it's not a hockey stick, but it's, it, it's going to grow very, very, very quickly. Um, what Have you got any sense of what you think the pricing is going to need to get to in five years' time? Because it just helps me talk to people here, you know, investors, and say, you know, cobalt is you know, down at the moment, but it's it's not a slow burn because it's going to have to pick up quite quickly. So if you're happy to sit on a two, three, five-year investment, you, you know, and stick that in the drawer, you could do quite well out of this. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think that because we're in a new paradigm and, I, and I'm, um, I don't use sort of cliched words lightly, because the marginal demand is in a new segment that simply wasn't in market influence 10 years ago, it's difficult to take the historical price, let's call it 25, and say, well, that mm. by definition will be the long-term price. I mean, that 50 years of history doesn't impute even 10 years of forecasting. Um, I think the price will be higher insofar as that the demand growth rate and the unsubstitutable, unsubstitutable portion of that rate will be higher than it's ever been before. So to me, and I know a number of the, we know a number of the consulting home houses very well, typically they range from 25, 26, but more often 27, $28 into the low $30 mark. Now there's a split between cobalt metal and in our case, cobalt sulfate, which then commands a premium. Well, it's linked to the metal price, but longer term we think it will command a premium because it's already battery product right, as opposed to a metal which you then have to convert to it. Mm. So we're comfortable as a company using about a $27 price target. Um, we know that within our conversations both in Korea and Japan and there's some fairly conservative companies there, 25 to 27, they're very comfortable with and don't believe, that's not to say the price won't increase and be sustained for a period above that but longer term they i think they're comfortable in the, in the mid to high 20 range yeah so what's happening today then with with companies because the couple of companies that we've talked to are all struggling no one's prepared to finance them today and the yes. companies are not necessarily well they need the money but at the same time they don't want to take too much money because the share prices are depressed so the ways around that are you've got to get creative with your financing so strategic partners term contracts are any being signed today or people sitting back and and, and waiting because I don't know I don't know I don't know what the inventories are like around the world there's obviously this trading going on people taking the arbitrage on that but you know can can this market afford to sit around and not fund explorers at the moment yeah, you've touched on a, a few points. Look, I think being a minor metal, even though it is, lit, as we talked about, it's um, traded on the LME, debt providers, project finance providers in particular, won't use the LME as any form of predictor. So to some degree, you can't hedge on it. You can't hedge because there's no liquidity. And so a, a bank will look at it and say, well, what long-term numbers shall I use? And it's in, it's difficult. It's it's similar in the lithium space. It's difficult unless you've got a very large liquid, terminally traded market, to get banks comfortable that there's some predictive power in in that market. So you need the realm of independent consultants. So automatically, um, 
And better still, you need a third party who can act as an octave, octave, offtake provider for which will give you some, some grounding around those numbers. So that automatically makes your challenge a lot harder. Um, our view, and we've got a very disciplined view here, is that um, if you bring into your um, equity partner sphere one or two high quality um, global partners, partners which I won't name them, but top four or five battery makers in the world, these are household names, mm. then they'll bring to you the surety of an offtake contract with a price, the credit worthiness required as a partner that the banks will lend against, and importantly, as a strategy, allow you to maybe give them a uh, increased offtake disproportionate to their equity share. So in other words, they may be a minority owner, but you'd give them a majority of the offtake because during those critical foundation years where project financing is onerous, typically onerous on projects. So I'm talking about uh, project financing durations, give or take a six, seven year durations. You're going to spend two of year, two to three years of that in construction. You're really only, get, only going to have three years, maybe four to pay those cash flows back at very high hurdles. So your partners, your offtake partners better be, have the credit quality. And if you like, step in and give, take more than their share of offtake. So there's a surety around those revenue streams. And that's our strategy. And that's not, um, I mean, I'm sure that's common sense to most, but that's one that we've in particular uh, taught ourselves through these basically three years of negotiation. So bring a partner in, sell part of the project, but use them during the foundation period to offtake um, a greater proportion at that therefore allowing the project to come into being. It's a, it's a fascinating period, actually, this bit that really interests me, which is um, for a junior with a small market cap, with um, not much cash, your negotiation, uh, your leverage is quite low, okay? It, it, because everyone knows your, your position. And it's not just you, I'm talking about explorers generally, okay? You know, we've we've spoken to say lithium companies who have gone down the strategic partner route and say, you know, you've got it's got they've got to have a good balance sheet to reduce the cost of that money, assuming you can use their balance sheet um, sure. to 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 raise funds, because that funding is the difference between you making a margin and not making a margin. We you know we've also had conversations with people. Um, who've gone down the kind of royalty streaming route, but they haven't had the power to negotiate good terms. They just want to get the contract, the, the, the project going. Yeah. And the only person making money is the royalty company. So, you know, it's, it's a very delicate phase of negotiation that uh, companies, you know, explorers like yourself have to go through. So you, yep. you, have, to, you have to wind your way way through, through that carefully. Um, and I, I thought the other interesting thing was there are companies in other sectors like one of the lithium companies we've spoken to the strategic partner is not a battery company it's an energy energy company from another source which is an oil company because they're looking to yeah. diversify for instance so yes. you know there there are different options on on the table it's a question of you know what what you can persuade that strategic partner to do and you know what they can do for you it's it's a great question look we um We've taken a long time to bring in some very um, experienced, with you know, grey-haired 
um, uh, consultants into our business. So from day one, we understood the need to go out and get quality commercial relationships. So that's been a focus. So even whilst we were an explorer and drilling holes, we were creating um, those relationships. Today, we're in a development phase. We're um, 18 months or so away from from final feasibility. So we're knocking on the door of final investment decision in that sort of 20 month period. Um, that advice for us in Cobalt was that the specialist streaming um, companies that are out there would strike a deal for someone who was still in a, say, a PFS um, uh, development stage, but the haircut you'd get on those cobalt units would be onerous. Now, on one hand, fantastic, you get some money in. On the other hand, these are take or pay arrangements. So you, the risk of not delivering when you're still some years out from even the final uh, feasibility is, is huge. The biggest single drawback of that, and this is a one that, that's um, prevalent across a lot of metals, if you sign away a large portion of your uh, offtake to one of these streaming um, companies and you're getting, say, $10 per pound cobalt credit for that, when you come to project financing, You've impaired, your, you've impaired the project. Yeah. The bank will say, well, how many, what's your true revenue? Yeah. And in, rather than being X, it's now one third of X. Yeah. And yeah. with no way of breaking that. So the advice that we took early and we took um, to heart is don't try and pr uh, bring forward cash flows that would ultimately impair the project. Which leads me to my next strategy where we're out in the market with the same um, precursor in trading houses that we talked about before, looking, nothing wrong with pre-selling equity. So on one hand, I've, I, we don't want to pre-sell offtake or, or, or talk down the offtake, but pre-selling equity is a different beast because then I can bring forward cash flows to today, cash flows which the counterparty has some comfort in at a PFS level and then may be adjusted one time you get to bankable. So there's an adjustment there for a fair value outcome. We bring that forward today, then as a child of the equity market, I can turn my back on the market and say, I'm fully funded. And if you've got a large project as such we do, and I'll just use some basic numbers, a $500 million project, if you were to sell 20% of that as, as an MPV, you'd expect you know, $100 million, but you can't sell it at that because that's all the value gone. So you need mm -hmm. to have then apply discounts, bringing it forward. You're then fully funded all the way to FID and indeed some of the, the later engineering studies. With that comes that portion of offtake, that's fair enough. If the counterparty is credible, it brings credit worthiness to your book. And then what you do is what I said earlier, is give them a, a line of sight on a greater offtake than that equity, thereby underpinning your own credit worthiness. So for us, interesting strategy, but equity comes before offtake, if that makes sense. No, I, I, I totally understand it. I think it's a very important, you know, uh, set of conversations that need to be had. You know, people need to be clear yeah. or companies need to be clear about their strategy. We always ask people about their the business plan, their strategy and how they're going to deliver it and what, what the impact of that is going to be for shareholders because yep. ultimately that's what you're in business for, you know, to make money for shareholders and, and, and yourselves, obviously, as, as shareholders. Well, look, Joe... Let's finish it there. I, I thought it was a fascinating uh, insight into the world of cobalt, which I didn't know much about. I, I learned a lot from that. So I do thank you for that. You must come back on the show and tell us about cobalt blue. 
Um, you, you gave us some clues there, it's nice, but let's let's get into the into the weeds and uh, see what you've got. So appreciate your time. Thanks very much. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.